And uh, so with that, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30 is where we're going to find ourselves. I, ho- I hope you love your Bible, because um, we're going to read a lot of Bible this morning. Um, the Bible will be on the screen. Uh, if you can't read for some reason, just ask the person next to you to uh, whisper in your ear what we're talking about. So um, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 30 says this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. But the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is it that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob in He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you were right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands. Have had five husbands, and the one you are now having is is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into the town, and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This morning as we continue on in our social space series, I want to speak to you from the subject, the well. As we look at Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well and what it teaches us about facing, influencing, and bringing healing to the world around us. Will you pray with me just one more time? Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray this would be your words, not my words this morning. Our ears are open, our hearts are soft. Speak to us this morning, we're listening. We need you in this place, in Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said Have you ever felt like something was wrong, but then tried not to deal with it? (laughs) The story was bound to come out. Uh, A few weeks ago, I developed a muscle thing due to overexertion called rhabdo. 
I'm embarrassed to talk about it. Although I came in second place in my workout, so there's that. <laughs> Let's just be real, I'm still a dude, all right? <laughs> if you don't know what it is, uh, it's overexertion of your muscles, and at a certain point, your muscles are no longer able to repair themselves, and so they kind of go backwards, and everything that's inside of them starts to leak out into your bloodstream. And because of this, your kidneys, the filtering system for your body, cannot uh, deal with the, the protein, the creatine, the blood that's now leaking out of your muscles uh, and, and trying to pass through your kidneys. And so what happens is that um, in, in pretty severe cases, uh, you experience uh, kidney failure, renal failure, and, and or death, potentially. Um, your blood level carries certain points. Uh, we sit at like between 56 and 356 points. I call them points because this is a winning thing again. Um, <laughs> and extreme cases of this, uh, you will be admitted into the hospital when your blood levels are sitting at 17,000, 20,000, 30,000. Way extreme cases were 50 to 60, even 70,000. When I was admitted to the ER, I had a blood level of 107,000. I was first place. Um, <laughs> throughout the day on Friday, this workout had taken place on a Wednesday. I traveled on a Thursday. I got back home on Friday. And all Friday, I was feeling the effects of this thing that was going on in my body. I was in pain. Um, I had some stuff going on with, with different fluids in my body that were indicating to me that there was some severe stuff wrong with my body. There was some severe stuff going on on the inside. But being the, the stubborn, prideful man that I can be sometimes, and all the guys know what I'm talking about, I decided that I'm just going to hold out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hold my own. I'm, I'm, I'm good, even though I was researching everything I could on the internet trying to figure out what I needed to do. But it was in those moments, those hours during Friday, where I realized something was wrong with me, but I just couldn't, I couldn't pull myself to the place to address what was wrong with me. And after many, many hours throughout the entire day, I finally, 8.30 at night, realized, Jason, you need to do something about the problem that is within you. And so it was at that moment that I checked myself into the ER and then for five days laid up in the hospital having probably the closest experience to death that I could have because of where my body was at. And what's unfortunate is that I waited that long to deal with what was going on internally within me. I waited that long with all the symptoms, with all the stuff, with all the things going on. I waited. Now, luckily, I was at least somewhat smart enough, and my wife was more stubborn than me to push me to deal with it, because I would have actually rolled through Sunday and came to church and preached, and, and that's just my stupidity, <laughs> if I wasn't dead before then. Um, but the problem is this, is that many times, just like me, we know something's wrong, but we fail to deal with it. We know something's wrong, but we fail to address it. Author and writer of the New American Commentary writes this concerning John chapter 4 and the story we just read. One of the delightful facts about the Gospel of John is that many of its stories linger in the listener's mind and generate implications for a lifetime. Such is the significance of the story of the Samaritan woman in John 4. It encourages reflection about presuppositions and prejudices about the mission of Jesus and worship, and it offers a wonderful paradigm for considering the nature and strategy of outreach. The truth is, whether we like to see it or not, there's a problem in the world that we live in. 
Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 22 highlights this problem when Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to, to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. There's a problem inherent in our world, inherent in us. There's a breaking down that's happening as we get closer and closer to heaven coming. And what Paul is saying here is that the world itself and us living upon it are waiting for a better day. We are waiting for a better moment, a, a better reality. We are waiting and longing for heaven. We wonder and reason, we pacify and persuade ourselves so that the moments that we currently exist in, we can have some sort of semblance of happiness and enjoyment so that while we wait, maybe waiting is not that bad. But John chapter four in this interaction that Jesus has with the woman at the well shows us another aspect of what life could be and should be. Jesus shows us the reality that should mark each of our lives as we live and move in the world that we have been called to be in for such a time as this. The last few months, let alone the past several years, have had me asking some tough questions. And I'm pretty sure that I'm not the only one in this room asking those questions. As I watch the damaging effects of racism and bigotry and sexism and hatred and bitterness, I can't help but ask, what am I supposed to do about it? Who are we supposed to be in the midst of it? What is my role in the world around me? And to be clear, as we stand in shock and horror, disbelief and sadness concerning the events that have just unfolded in Las Vegas, many voices and many ideas and many sides will now try and solve the problem. A problem, albeit, that at the end of the day is subject to a greater problem, and that is the problem of the human heart. The thing within us. And to be clear, I'm not here this morning to talk about policy or politics. I'm here this morning to talk about Jesus and what he shows us that our lives need to look like, what our behavior and our discourse should be in the midst of the times and the social space that we are living in today. Today's relationship talk is not about our marriages, is not about our dating, is not about even ourselves. It is about how we interact with the world around us, the social space that we find ourselves in. Because God is looking for his church. Jesus is looking for his church to stand at the gates of hell and say, today you are not going to step out of those gates into the world that we've been called to love and serve. Not on our watch, not right now. Not right now. So today I want to deal with some difficult stuff. I want to deal with this issue of racism and sexism and bigotry and hatred and violence that we see in the world around us. And if any of us in here this morning say, man, this type of topic, this type of conversation doesn't belong in the church, I want to let you know, yes, it does. Because it's right here in John chapter 4 where Jesus deals with it all. He deals with it all. How do we know that? Well, let's set up a little context before we get into the, to the crux of what I want to deal with this morning. Jesus was a Jewish man stepping into a Samaritan town, and that right there tells us everything that's happening. You see, racism, bigotry, hatred, sexism are not new terms and realities. 
And please don't hear that as me minimizing or trivializing the problems that we're facing today. I just need us to know that it's not new. Why? Because the broken condition of the human heart is not new. <laughs> it's, not, it's not new. Jesus found himself as he heads into Samaria, stepping to a very volatile and hostile situation, a situation that dated back generations. You see, the contention and divide that separated the Jews and the Samaritans was massive. The Jews at this time designated and deemed the Samaritans literally as this, and I quote, half-breeds. That was their, that was their language. Those are terms that we wouldn't even hear today. No one would even utter those terms today, or at least we would hope that they wouldn't. But the contention and the strife and the frustration, that the animosity that existed between the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Samaritans was at a peak level as Jesus enters into the fray of it all. And that's what's amazing about Jesus, that, that God chose such a time, God the Father showed, chose such a time to insert Jesus into the midst of it all. And so you have this degree of hatred, racism, bigotry, sexism that, that is taking place. Why? Because the Jews and the Samaritans, they hated each other. To the point that the Jews believed in the coming Messiah, although they rejected Jesus as the coming Messiah, the, the Samaritans decided, well, if you can have your faith, we're going to have our faith. So they developed their own faith system out of it. They too waited for the Messiah, but they refused to believe that the Messiah was going to come through the lineage of the Jewish people. Why? Because they hated the Jews hated each other. Paul himself, Paul the apostle, before he was Paul, he was Saul, he had orders to go and to persecute those who were mainly Samaritans becoming Christians, Christ followers, holding to his Jewish faith. They hated each other. They looked at each other with disdain. Racism, bigotry, hatred, sexism was alive and well as Jesus enters into the picture. Samaria in the New Testament times was a region in the middle of Palestine, with Judea to the south and Galilee to the north. Samaria was this place where the half-breeds went to live their life, to do their thing. And on the top of all of that, the fact that this was a woman and a Samaritan woman, and Jesus was talking to her, just put gasoline on the fire. Why? Because Jewish men did not talk to women at all, let alone Samaritan women. They wouldn't even address their wives in public during this time because women were seen as lower class citizens. And now, this is what Jesus does. Not only does Jesus stroll up into Samaria as a Jewish man, he strolls up and he sits at a well. He has a conversation with a Samaritan woman, and not only a Samaritan woman, but a woman who was caught with five husbands. She had a shady business past. And then it gets even greater than that. Not only is it a Samaritan woman in Samaria who has a shady past, but he then decides to have a theological conversation with her to which was deemed irresponsible at best. Why? Because women of the day and at that time were seen as stupid. These are the facts. This is the, the context. One writer put it this way, as the disciples stroll up on the scene, the disciples were thus men of their times, probably more concerned that Jesus was talking with a woman and that she was a Samaritan. She really had three strikes against her. She was a woman, she was a Samaritan, and she had a questionable reputation. 
Yet Jesus did not seem to be bothered by such customary patterns of restrictive conversation. His message was for everyone, those of every culture and standing in society. He was truly cross-cultural in his perspective and concerns for others. Jesus stepped over the lines of racism and bigotry and nationalism and all of these other things. He stepped over those lines so that he could have a conversation at the well with somebody who needed to hear the message of his heart. And so five years ago almost, I sat at a coffee shop in Phoenix with my wife and we labored over what we were going to call this church. There's a lot of names that you can call a church. Fun names, weird names, <laughs> names that none of us understand. <laughs> but as we sat and we thought about it, and this story echoed in our hearts, so what if our church was the well? What if our church was a place in the city where anybody and everybody could come to? See, the well had no restrictions because it was the one place that everybody could get water. And just like the Lion King, there was, there was things that weren't allowed at the watering hole. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Disney's theological, all right? So it was the one place that there wasn't restrictive policies. Everybody can show up and get what it is that they need to get in order to nurture their city, their family, their friends, to bring water back from the well. What if the church was the well? What if the church was the place where anybody and everybody could be and belong and receive the living water that Jesus was talking about? It's the well. So here we are with layers upon layers of historical misunderstanding, systematic racism, cultural bigotry, and sexism, and Jesus then decides that he's going to step over the line of all these things and start a conversation. And it's with this context that we are purview to some of the most important truths that Jesus is teaching us, each and every single one of us. And, and I want to stop right here, and I want to say some very strong statements. If you believe that you are not a part of what is going on, you're wrong. We all have dispositions and prejudices and thoughts and ideas that sometimes we don't even know are there until we stand in the light of the gospel. And we examine ourselves by the mirror of his word. And Jesus teaches us some very significant things in this moment that we need to know and and understand. I want to look at three truths that he teaches us. The first one is this. Number one, if you're taking notes this morning, we are called to confront what is complicated. We are called to confront what is complicated. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Watch this, verse four, the most powerful statements you will ever read. It says this, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. There's a very important word that we have to grab a hold of here, and it's the Greek word used for had. In other translations, we read the word necessary. It was necessary for him to go through Samaria. The Greek word employed here is the word adai. And when we read this section of scripture, it'd be easy to just pass over it and simply seeing it as a necessary directional path. However, the Greek word adai speaks more to an ordained purpose or moment in time related to a pre-planned and pre-arranged moment in time. Jesus was stepping into a divine agenda, not a path of MapQuest. 
a die. He had to go through Samaria. It wasn't by happenstance. It wasn't by circumstance. It was God the Father ordained. Because remember, Jesus said this, I don't do anything that my Father doesn't tell me to do. I don't do anything. So when the Bible says that he had to go through Samaria, it wasn't because he was going and traveling a certain way. There was a preordained moment that God the Father said, I need my son Jesus to step into a moment and break the ice on some things by stepping over boundaries that no one else wants to step over. He had to go through Samaria. One author put it this way, the use of a die, however, reminds us one of the major facts that we need to understand is that Jesus moved not in response to human pressure, but as a result of the Father's direction and the determined hour for his life. Jesus is showing us that our place in history is not an accident or without purpose, that we've actually been called to confront what is oftentimes very complicated and textured with complexity and nuance. We have to be the type of people that are committed to taking the necessary path And it's a sad day when those called by God take these paths or refuse to take these paths and abdicate their call to do so. Listen, we don't change the world by avoiding complicated realities. And I think for too long the Christian community has done that. We've buried our heads in the sand. We've created a feel-good theology that supports inaction and apathy, keeping us out of the very ring that we've been called to contend in for the lives and hearts of people. We've been called to contend for people. So we don't step out of the ring and offer platitudes and nice, sincere thoughts. What we do is we step into the ring and we say, no, we're going to contend for people. We're going to weep with those who weep and we're going to rejoice with those who rejoice. If my brothers are hurting, I'm hurting with them. If somebody feels and knows and is experiencing life in a way that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus, I'm going to step in and I'm going to lock arms and I'm going to say, I am for you and I am with you in the life that we lead. We've been called to contend with complicated things. Jesus threw himself headlong into the hard stuff of his generation. The religious despised him for it. The politicians demonized him because of it and the followers left him over it. Did you hear that? The religious despised him for it. The politicians demonized him because of it and his followers left him over it. Jesus was not the symbol he has become today. See, we put him on t-shirts and in posters. We've commercialized the cross, and while doing it, we've abandoned the mandate given by God found in Zechariah 7, 9 through 10, when it says, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. This is the Bible. So the first thing that Jesus shows us is that we're called to confront that which is complicated. Second thing is this, number two, is we are called to reconcile what has been ruined. We've been called to reconcile what has been ruined. Ruined. Jesus standing face to face with the woman at the well was standing face to face with a problem much bigger and much greater. He was not just talking to a Samaritan woman, but he was speaking to a divide. He was speaking to separation, hatred, hostility, and division. Like Jesus, we're called to step into these dark places and reconcile that which has been ruined. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 says this, From now on, therefore, we, we regard no one according to the flesh. Come on, do we, we hear that today? We regard no one according to the flesh. And even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, 
We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And then watch what he gave us. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. See, the tensions between people, races, cultures, cities, and parties are at a place right now that is hard and frustrating to watch. This past week, month, year, my heart has been wrecked. To be honest with you, there are many people who feel that this message has no place in the church. However, not only am I compelled by the current state in which we exist as a nation and as a world, but I am compelled as a studier of Scripture and a follower of Christ to talk about these things. Why? Because we've been called to reconcile what has been ruined. See, the word reconciliation, check this out, comes from the Greek word katalasso, which means to effect change to reconcile. When the church loses its ability to effect change in the world that it finds itself in, we've lost our ability to be what God has called us to be. In the Roman Empire, there were two kinds of provinces, senatorial provinces and imperial provinces. The senatorial provinces were made up of people who were peaceful and not at war with Rome. They had surrendered and submitted. But the imperial provinces were not peaceful. They were dangerous because the world, they would rebel against Rome if they could. It was necessary then for Rome to send ambassadors to the imperial provinces to make sure that the rebellion did not break out. This world that we live in is an imperial province. As far as God is concerned, and he has sent us, his ambassadors, in the world to declare peace, not war. You are an ambassador. You're supposed to stroll up in dark places, broken places in our society, in our culture, and effect a change to reconcile what has been ruined, to reconnect it. What, is the recon- what, what does the ministry of reconciliation look like? Here's a few things. How do we do this? Well, first, we have to make a decision to be a bridge rather than a barrier. One of the greatest reasons that people never meet Jesus is because they have to go through us rather than over us. Too many of us are barriers to somebody else's encounter with Jesus rather than bridges for their encounter with Jesus. The second thing we have to do is this, is we have to make the decision to pray about it rather than post about it. The truth is that we spend more time posting about things than praying about things. Because if we were praying about more things, we'd be posting less about them. I really do believe that we're going to, if we're going to accomplish more in this world, we have to start praying more about things. See, social media was not designed to change the world, but the Bible tells us that prayer has the power to change everything. And I see far too many people posting about things. If your posture is not prayerful in it, then do not have a posture of posting about it. The third way we do this is we have to make the decision to love rather than to hate. I am acutely aware that a few months ago as white supremacists stood 
in the middle of a town, declaring their allegiance to, a, to systematic hatred and racism on a Saturday, that they would find themselves then on a Sunday declaring the praises of God. And I find that very hard to reconcile in my heart because this is the truth. The Bible tells us that if we love God but hate our brother, we don't know squat about love. That's the Greek word, squat. George Washington Carver said it like this, I will never let another man ruin my life by making me hate him. I'm amazed at how hard it seems like it is becoming to love people rather than how easy it is to hate them. See, to be ambassadors of reconciliation, we have to be committed to bringing together that which has been divided. And the fact that the church has entered into dividing measures is something that frustrates my mind and my heart. And the declaration is this, that in this city, on our watch, this place, the well is going to be exactly what it needs to be, a well, where we cross all barriers and all lines so that we can be ambassadors of reconciliation in the world that we've been called to. Number three, the last one is this. We are called to represent kingdom culture not a cultural kingdom. I'll explain what that means. This encounter with the woman at the well is so layered and multifaceted. There's so many intriguing storylines and things that we see happening here with Jesus and this woman. But probably one of the more pronounced is this truth, that we are called to represent a kingdom culture rather than a cultural kingdom. In other words, our lives are to present and represent his kingdom rather than the kingdom of the world that we live in. And I think for many of us, this is a very strong reality that we have to face. Does my life represent the kingdom of God, or does it represent the cultural kingdom in which I live in? Paul highlights this truth as he writes this to the Philippians, Philippians 3, verses 4 through 11. Listen to what Paul says about himself and this very issue. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also... If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as as rubbish. That word rubbish that Paul uses right here, just so you know in the Greek, I can't literally give the four-letter word that it represents in our English. That's what he says. He counts all of this stuff as loss. You could just add a big bleep right here when he says this. In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that I might by any means possible may attain the resurrection of the dead. This would be the same thought that he would share with the Romans in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
You see, the point is this. We belong to another kingdom, an imperishable kingdom, a kingdom that the Bible tells us will not rot or is not affected by moth and rust. It is a heavenly kingdom, a kingdom that is both now and not yet. Yet for so many of us, we strive and work to hang on to a cultural kingdom, the kingdom of this world. See, the woman of Samaria, she's now confused. This man who she's never met before crosses over all these lines that divide to offer her something that no one has ever offered her before, living water. Jesus crossed all cultural lines in order to introduce her to a kingdom culture. To a kingdom culture. You see, the degree of effectiveness that we can have in the world is largely connected to our ability to desire and desire to choose which kingdom we belong to. For so many of us, we're more concerned with our earthly heritage than we are our heavenly heritage. We're more concerned with what we look like, how our social media comes across, what political party we belong to, and that my opinion is heard. We're more concerned with that than we are at representing the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish when he prayed on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the deal. When our political affiliation becomes more important than our heavenly assignment, we have a problem. And I know for some of us that's really hard to hear. But we give up the worldly culture that we live in when we step into a redeemed position with God and we say no longer the world, it's now your kingdom. It's him increasing in me and me decreasing. Why? Because this is what the kingdom that we belong to looks like. Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 16. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he says, this is what I want my church to look like. This is what it all needs to add up to. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Because you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to the whole house in the same way. Let's your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven because he said your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven this weekend we have a choice before us we can let this message do exactly what It has the possibility of doing which is jarring us for a moment and then we go home and we go back to normal. Or we can allow this message to reverberate in our hearts, in our minds, and I can step out of this place and I can make the decision to change. I can make the decision to stop with the denials that nothing is happening like we're seeing in our nation. You know, as a white man in this nation, it's really easy to sit back and, and say 
No, people aren't experiencing racism. But you know what? I pastor a multicultural church now. And as I sit back and I have coffee and eat lunch with my friends of different colors and races and backgrounds, I'm distinctly aware of the pain that they experience that I will never experience. And I know for some of us it's hard to talk about, it's hard to think about because, well, Christians, we do really good at making things positive, encouraging and loving. But the problem is this is that positive, encouraging and loving didn't change and doesn't change anything. But people of the cross who decide to stand and say, listen, as long as somebody's hurting on my watch, I'm coming in with arms. Welcome to the well. A church for the city. A place when anybody and everybody is welcome. I don't care what your affiliation or your background is. I don't care where you've come from. This will be a place, will always be a place, and I will die and fight on this hill that the church is the well. That there's no regulations and reformations that take place here. This is a church for anybody and everybody.